A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, but not just another episode. This is another episode in our ongoing series of the Zionists and the Rabbis. This is part six, and it's not just another episode in our ongoing series. This is the grand finale. We're going to wrap up the story of the Zionists and the Rabbis here and hopefully move on to new series, and there's always plenty more to talk about. So I'm going to try to get around to really, um, I guess, summarize in a way everything that we've been saying until now, and discussing about the relationships and the positions that different rabbinical figures took as far as Zionism and nationalism and the state of Israel is concerned. We'll bring it down to modern times and, uh, and wrap up this series. So I want to start off with a letter I received from a listener, a very good listener, very keen listener, who commented on part five, the last episode of the Zionists and the Rabbis. So I'm going to quote the letter, short. I was listening to part five, Rabbis and Zionists, and you mentioned that Menachem Parash would meet the Briskerov on the corner to discuss happenings in the Knesset, vis-a-vis the Aguda strategy, etc. After looking up this info online, I noticed that the Briskarov died on Erev Yom Kippur in 1959, and Menachem Parash only entered the Knesset in 1959. Was this done prior to Rav Parash's official standing in the Knesset? End of letter. Now, first of all, I want to say that that's fantastic because I'm really happy to receive a letter like that because this is exactly the type of thing that I enjoy correcting other people with. So it's good that I receive it as well. Um, you know, making finding out that the dates don't match up and therefore the story could not have taken place uh, as was said. As it happens... Um, I didn't check up the dates before I related that anecdote with Menachem Parash because I had heard the story from Menachem Parash at his Shabbos table when I ate there, when I was a bacher in the Mary Shiva, and I ate there a couple of times. 
it was already at the end of his life, and he was just full of stories, and it was, it was always fascinating to hear from him. So I just never bothered checking up the facts because I felt like I had heard it from the guy himself. So it turns out that I must have misunderstood because the letter writer here is 100% correct, and therefore he was definitely not talking about what went on in the Knesset with the Briskorov because Benachem Parish was not in the Knesset at the time. As it happens, in the 1950s, Menachem Parish did have other public uh, um, official capacities. He was the head of Chinuch Atzmai at that time. He also was the Yoshev Rosh. I'm not even sure how to correctly translate that. What would be the English equivalent? Um, some sort of official head position of the Agudis Yisrael organization without being its representative in the Knesset. Um, he held that position in the 1950s as well, so he was definitely in the Agudo offices every day in his, that capacity, and Chinuch was somewhat connected under the auspices of Agudas Yisrael at the time, and therefore he definitely had plenty to discuss with the Briskorov. So it was probably in that position that he was discussing uh, on the corner, the street corner with the Briskorov, and not his capacity as Knesset member, which only took place after the Briskorov died. So that's that's very good. Now, once I was corrected on, on that Menachem Parsh story, so to make up for it, I'll relate another Menachem Parsh story that he told me um, also when I was uh, when I was eating there by uh, by that Shabbos Suda, or another time, one of the times I was eating there for Shabbos Suda, and it's a, it's a great story and brings out a lot of what I've been discussing about the rabbis and the Zionists and the relationship that the rabbis have with the state of Israel. So again, I'm hearing it, I'm relating it from the source himself. He said that it was a famous uh, episode, ongoing really, that went on for quite a bit of time in the state of Israel in the 19... It started in the 1950s, it really got hot in the 1960s and 70s, was the autopsy issue. Uh, the state of Israel mandated or at least allowed um, the hospitals and pathology labs to do uh, pretty much indiscriminate autopsies. It depends also on what period of time and which hospital. There's a lot of other factors. So obviously, I'm generalizing because I don't want to go into the whole autopsy story right now. And um, and um, many people, many in the from community were very anti this, understandably. It was a, uh, you know, against uh, certain halachic principles. And there was all kinds of protests, and there's all kinds of stories about dying people who didn't want to go into hospitals. Actually, Reb Zalman Sarutskin, who was one of the Gedali Hadar, refused to go to a hospital. He died in 1965 without going into the hospital, to the best of my knowledge, because he was afraid they would do an autopsy to him. And, um, and there's all kinds of people smuggling out bodies and stealing bodies and protesting, and some of these protests sometimes got violent with the police and... All kinds of stuff like that. Or Rafal Soloveitchik, actually. The son of the Briskorov was involved in many of these uh, stories. In any event, going back to Menachem Parsh, so at the height of this autopsy issue, uh, I guess like a scandal or protest or whatever you want to call it, so Reb Moshe Feinstein in America, who was very concerned about what was going on with the autopsies in Eretz Yisrael, he called up Menachem Parash, the two were very close, and, uh, and he said to him, 
you know, you know, my standing as a Paisik, as a halachic decisor in America, and a lot of people listen to my psak, I will issue a psak that people should not visit Eretz Yisrael, they should not move to or visit Eretz Yisrael because they're in danger if something happens to them and they end up dying in Eretz Yisrael, then their bodies might get cut up. So it's not, not, not advisable to go visit or move there. And if I issue a psak like that, and a lot of people will listen to me, then this will damage uh, tourism, and it can, uh, it's bad for their prestige, it's bad for tourism, bad for the economy, and they definitely don't want that to happen. So why don't you pass over this threat to Levi Eshkol, the Prime Minister of the State of Israel at the time, and tell him, and tell him this is what I said. So he has a mission from Reb Moshe. He goes ahead and calls... Levi Eshkol. One of the interesting things about the early uh, secular leaders of the Mapai is that they're all European. And they had a certain European Heimishkeit, I guess we'll call it to them, and especially someone like Levi Eshkol, who was a labor Zionist, Mapai-nik, farmer, definitely very, very distant from traditional Jewish life in any way, shape, or form. On the other hand, he had a love for the Yiddish language. And um, one, of the, one of the interesting... Uh, uh, aspects of Levi Eshkol's uh, tenure as prime minister is that he would conduct his cabinet meetings in like half Yiddish, and he would always grumble things in Yiddish and and you know throw out these cliches and sayings in Yiddish. He he uh, definitely was a major part of the way he spoke and his personality. So that's also parenthetically in the background before I tell you what happened. So Menachem Parish calls him up, and first he explains who Ramaisha is and what his standing is in the Orthodox world in America. And then he passes over this threat, this, uh, this, this psak that he's going to give, unless the autopsy issue is worked out. And, uh, and he waits for Eshkol's response. And Eshkol is quiet, is quiet on the phone. And finally, Levi Eshkol breaks the silence, and he says to Menachem Parish, Nu Menachem vetobna kleine medine. Okay, Menachem, so we'll have a small country. And that was, that was his response. In other words, he wasn't going to change anything about the autopsy issue. So there you go. You got another story of Menachem Parish and, um, and his position and, uh, as far as relaying what the different concerns of rabbinical figures were. So that's definitely part of our story here. So what I want to do tonight is to kind of summarize, bring it down to modern times, uh, summarize the different positions of famous rabbinical figures of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, even 90s, because that's kind of what forms the different streams of thought uh, till today um, amongst the various different groups uh, within this, uh, traditional groups, uh, orthodox groups within the state of Israel um, and, with, and outside of the state of Israel. And it was formed during that you know, right after the initial stage of the state is founded and the, the early years. So then when things fall into a routine, so there's a long-term view and some rabbis articulated their position clearer or more or better than others. And I'll just take a few as an example, and I'm not choosing a few to exclude others. Um, and obviously... We can elaborate it on more by including more and more and other rabbis and different positions, but I want to keep it workable, so I'll just choose a few. So we'll start 
with a nice story that took place, or it really culminated, it was a several-year affair, but it culminated in 1972, the issue of the, the Langer children. You have these two children, Hanoch and, um, and Miriam, I believe. Should have checked up those names, I guess, uh, before. Um, um, the, the issue of their, their status, are they Mamzerim or not? What happened was, is that these two Langer children were, um, were children of a, of a woman who, in her second marriage, had married someone in Israel, and she had never gotten a, a, um, a, a, a divorce, a get, from her first husband. So here we have an issue that she married with, you know, without a, without a divorce from her first husband, and she has two children, and and, um, and now what, what's their status? Hanoch and Miriam Langer. I just looked it up. That's what it was. I was right. Um, and and are they mamzerim or not? So they seemingly are because she didn't get a divorce from her first husband. So here's the other catch. The first husband was a ger. He was a convert. So now, if we can establish that he wasn't a good convert, he was a lousy convert, so then perhaps his gerus was not a good gerus. He didn't keep the Torah and mitzvos, so he's not a good ger. So he's still classified as a non-Jew. So marriage to a non-Jew is not a real marriage. So she didn't need a get. She didn't need a divorce. But if she... But if he was a good ger, then she needed a divorce because he was a practicing Jew, then she would need to go get a divorce, a get, and since she didn't, then her kids from her second marriage will be mamzer. So seemingly a halachic shayel, with, with no reason that I should be mentioning it because I don't know any halacha, especially not the complicated halachas of either gitin or gerus. So, you know, definitely not my position. Uh, so, but it has a historic value, this story, because... The, the Rabbanut at the time, uh, many rabbis in the Rabbanut seemingly saw it as a very clear-cut case where there was, they were mamzerim. And that was the position that the Av Bezdin of the Beit Din Hagadol of the Rabbanut, a fellow by the name of Rabbi Yisif Shalom El-Yashiv, who was the Av Bezdin of the Beit Din Hagadol in Heichal Shlomo of the Rabbanut, and he felt that they were mamzerim. Problem was that that that, that uh, it became political and it became a public issue. It made a big issue in the media, and Moshe Dayan got personally involved, and he said he's going to push through the Knesset. He threatened to push through the Knesset legislation that would allow non-halachic marriages, and if non-halachic marriages were allowed legally, and the Rabbanut didn't didn't have to be involved altogether, which is a current event issue also. So then we can avoid the whole issue of Mamzeira because who cares what the Rabbanut says? And Golda Meir got involved and it got very complicated and sticky and, and they needed to find a solution. Well, the easy solution is to, to establish that the Gerus of the first husband was not a good Gerus. And they found a rabbi who was willing to paskin on that, Rav Shlomo Goren, who was the son-in-law of the Rav Hanazir of David Kain in Merkaz Rav. He was a graduate of the Chevron Yeshiva, a big Talmud Chacham, he was the chief rabbi of the army for many years, famously during the Six-Day War. I remember actually, I was assisting many years ago, when I was assisting the Mashkiach of the Mir Yeshiva, 
with uh, the acceptance in the beginning of the new zman. So you need he's getting he's getting old even then he's still around and healthy but even then he was getting old, and uh, and he and Ravarin Chadash and I was helping him out with uh, receiving the new bacharim and the new Israeli bacher walked into his office and the mashgiach said what's your name and he said something I forget his first name Goran. And the mashgiach looks up and he says where are you from and he says Tel Aviv he said oh are you Goran's grandson, and he said, yes, I am. He says, oh, I remember your grandfather well from Hebron Yeshiva, where the Mashkiach, Rabban Chodesh, of course, grew up because his father was the Mashkiach. So his grandson was coming to learn in the Mir Yeshiva. So in any event, Sir Rav Shlomo Goran was, was an f- interesting personality. He was, after he was the chief rabbi of the army, he was the chief rabbi in Tel Aviv. And he later um, was voted in to become the chief rabbi of the state of Israel. Actually, right around this time, Rabbi Sir Yehuda Unterman, who was an old Talmud of Rabbi Shimon Shkup from his days in Malch Yeshiva, he was the chief rabbi, and he was voted out, which uh, is another story. He felt that it was he shouldn't have been voted out, and Rabbi Shlomo Goren was voted in. It was also right around this time, and possibly there was a connection between the two events. So... So Rav Goren wrote a psak that the Geras of the father was, um, of the, excuse me, of the first husband was no good, and well, he didn't practice as a Jew, and he, and he, therefore, the kids are not mamzerim, and everything's great. Now Rav Eliyashev, Rav Shalom Eliyashev, resigned in protest, and it would, it's, uh, this is a legendary res- resignation, he resigned in protest from the Rabbanut, and uh, essentially, this was the, um, we'll say it in a very uh, blunt way, this was the conversion process for Rabbi Yashiv. He was welcomed back into the, what we would call the ultra-Orthodox or Haredi world of Israel. And people like Rav Shach and others welcomed him. And, you know, he had been uh, problematic until this point. Uh, he was part of the Rabbanut, and Rav Cook was close with his family, and it was his Masada Kedushin. And here he resigned in protest against Rav Goran's uh, psak, and therefore he went back to being a Rav and a Paisik in Me'eshe'arim, and he became part, uh, mainstream part, and later the leader of the um, Haredi-Lithuanian world. And it was that split, and it became a major split, and a bitter split. There was a lot of uh, reverberations of that psak, and this story became a major divisive story between um the Rabbanut or the Zionist rabbi camp as opposed to the more conservative elements of the emerging power and demographics of the Haredi society. And this became a major identity and a major divisive issue. Um, the irony of the story, and this will sum up that part of the story, is that, is that the positions that were taken were seemingly the opposite positions that we would think would have been taken. If we look at, if we take a survey of the of the uh, current disputes in the Geras world, so we notice that the less conservative elements, or the more Rabbanut, or more Zionist inclined rabbis, are more lenient in regards to Geras questions, and we don't have to check exactly if they're doing every single mitzvah with every chumrah. If there's a more, again, I don't know the halachas, I could be, I'm making things up now, but they seem to be more uh, lenient in accepting Geirim in, in, as far as the Kabbalah mitzvahs, as far as they're taking on the mitzvah observance is concerned. 
whereas the more conservative elements, the more Haredi elements, uh, rabbis and poiskim, uh, they are going to say, no, we have to see that there's a real Kabbalah mitzvah, and they have to take Kabbalah mitzvah in a very stringent form, and we have to see that they're really taking the Kabbalah mitzvah. That would seem to be the positions that are taken today, and throughout the, the years of the state, since the state has been founded. And here in the Langer story, it's the exact opposite. Rav Goran is saying, you know why the kids are not mamzerim? It's because his Gairus was not a good Gairus, the first husband. His Gairus wasn't a good Gairus because he didn't do a real Kabbalah mitzvah. If he wants to do a real Kabbalah mitzvah, it has to be the real thing. He's got to be keeping everything. And we have to see that he's keeping the mitzvahs. And if there's not a real good Kabbalah mitzvah, forget about it. It's not a good Gairus. Whereas Rebel Yashiv and the other rabbis were saying, no, any Gairus, it was a little bit of a Gairus, it was a little bit of a Kabbalah mitzvah. It's enough. It's enough to be called a good Gairus. And that, that makes it that it was a real ger, and he's a Jew, and therefore the kids are mamzerim. So that's a little bit of an irony of the story. But that story and that position that Rav Goran uh, took made him, uh, um, you know, a persona, persona non grata in the, in the Haredi camp. And he's the Zionist rabbi. The, the certain, a certain distrust of the rabbinut uh, remained in the Haredi society in general since then. Um, and, and, and they, and that, that created a big divide. And that, of course, created the identity and the later leadership of Rebel Yashiv as well. The next, if we'd stay in the, in the, um, again, in the more, in the more Zionist camp, just mention another personality and sum up his view because that became a dominant view of rabbinical position, um, in the following years. In 1967, shortly before the Six Day War, Rav Kook's son, who was the Rosh Hashiva and his successor at Merkaz Arav, Rav Tzvi Yehuda Kook, was also a tremendous person. He was a big Talmud Chacham, big leader, very fiery personality, very strong personality. He gave a speech about getting back Hebron and other holy sites to the Jewish people in what he called the heartland, the the heartland of Tanakh, where the Ovis, the uh, uh, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov were and walked in places that were under the control of Jordan at the time. And it was almost a messianic speech that how is the Geula going to come if we don't get these lands back? And shortly afterwards, of course, the Six-Day War in a very miraculous way took place and all these areas came back. All of a sudden, they were under control again. And what resulted from that was a policy of of um, of settling that land, of the settling of that land as a way to bring Mashiach closer, and it took on a very messianic form, um, and this became an official rabbinical position, not only of Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Kuk, but many of his students and Talmidim and other rabbanim who were affiliated with the Mizrahi and the National Zionist um, uh, part of of traditional society, traditional Jewish society in Israel. And the Gush Emunim movement of settling the newly conquered settlements of um, of the West Bank um, and in and East Jerusalem become it becomes an ideal, it becomes a messianic ideal, and that position becomes a very dominant position within the community, and it becomes part of their religious identity. In other words, uh, a person who doesn't believe in the messianic ideal of settling this land and helping that bring Mashiach, that's a 
That's a problem in his religiosity, according to that, that point of view. That's a lessening or a cold, a, a cooling of his religiosity. And the more religious you are, the more you believe in that settlement of the land, in, in that messianic ideal of it bringing the Mashiach. And that really forms and shapes with the ideal of Reb Tzvi Yehuda Kuk at the head. Um, and later on it develops in, in, and it's developed and still being developed by many other rabbis who followed in his wake. So that, that becomes a dominant feature on the landscape. It affects Israeli politics at the national level. It also affects the inner, inner religious identity of the state of Israel because this is a strong rabbinical position with strong rabbinical backing of, of great leaders. And it's not accepted by other elements of traditional society. It follows through that previously this, this had come from the Mizrahi, the, the ones who believed in nationalism, the ones who believed in the Eschalta de Gula. And this seemed, would seem to be the natural step that followed it. And that led to an entire historical process, like I said, of the Gusha Munim, the settler movement, which uh, continues till this very day. And that, that's, that's a summary of one position. If we move over to the center of the, of, the, um, of the rabbinical positions that are being solidified at this time, we come to many rabbis who remain in the center, and I, I can't mention all of them, so I want to use as an example uh, the Ger Rebbe, the Beis Yisrael, Yisrael Alter, one of the surviving sons of the Ger Rebbe, most of the Ger Rebbe's children were killed uh, by the Nazis during the war, a couple of them were able to accompany him, the um, Mariamas, when he escaped and made it to Eretz Yisrael at the beginning of the war. And what, the oldest one that was able to accompany, he wasn't the oldest child, but he was the oldest one who accompanied him, was Yisrael Alter, who lost his wife and children in the war. Um, he did remarry, but never had children. And he became a very strong and very dynamic, very charismatic, very, uh, really incredible leader. It's really a, a, an amazing story, the base Yisrael. There's a lot to say about him. And perhaps... We'll get to him at another opportunity, but I want to speak about his position on dealing with the state of Israel. And I don't even know if I would call it a position on Zionism at this point, because his position in different forms, and there are nuances that are different with each rabbi. And of course, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to brush over the differences. I'm trying to give over a more general idea. But the, the, his position becomes a mainstream position in the Agudas Yisrael world in much of the Hasidic world, in much of even the Litvish yeshiva world, uh, the emerging Litvish yeshiva world, which we'll get to in the next personality when we talk about Rav Shach a little bit, um, of a certain practical approach, meaning no real position is articulated in a clear way. The old opposition that Agudis Yisrael always had to Zionism still officially exists and full recognition of the legitimacy of the state, and that it's the ideal thing to have even before Mashiach comes, and it's the ideal thing to have even though it's secular, is never said. It's not, the, the opposition always remained, that it's not ideal that it's a secular state, and it's not ideal that we have, um, the, the, that, the, that the Zionist state exists as it is. But there's no um, active opposition, and there's a lot of practical considerations that make it that make it worthwhile to work for the state, primarily funding. And the Ger Rebbe, who's the major leader of Agudas Yisrael, and he makes sure to send, first of all, his brother-in-law, Rabbi Shemayel Levin, 
and other representatives to the Knesset, like I said, Menachem Parish, Shlomo Lawrence, others at the time are sent um, as the Good Israel's representatives to the Knesset at the um, city level, there's always representatives of the Agudis Yisrael, of the cities that have a religious population. And and it's living the practical life. We need to have a school system. We need to be... And there's a certain ambivalence that develops. There's a certain... Um, and Ger, even in Poland, was always known for being very practical. You know, ideals are fine, but we got to live practical. That was Dimre Amis. That was his whole way of leadership. Recognize the times deal with the times in the here and now as best as we can to further the needs for his flock, further the needs of the Jewish people. That's why he was such a great leader, um, because he was the most practical. He saw things as it was, and let's just deal with it. Um, not fight with it, not go crazy over it in either direction, in full-fledged support or in full-fledged opposition. And and this this camp, which... Uh, in. It's, it's one of the funny or interesting features, rather, of this position is that the position on Zionism or the state of Israel is never really articulated. Uh, no one ever is, you know, no one's ever taught in the schools what's the position that we have about it. Are we completely against it or are we completely for it? Um, this uh, goes into the Litvish world. Um, people like Rubchatzkel Abramsky, again, there's a somewhat of a leadership vacuum after the Chazaynish and later the Briskarov pass away in the end of the 1950s, the Briskarov is, uh, passes on. And um, there's a little bit of a leadership vacuum until the rise of Rav Shach about 15 years later. Um, so there's other great people in the Lithuanian uh, Torah world. There's the Stipler, there's uh, Zalman Sraskin, and one of the main ones is, um, is um, excuse me, Rav Chatzkel Abramsky who was you know, a great rabbi, a great Paisik, a great Talmud Chacham. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky said he was the last of the rabbis, as a rav, as a marad asra, as a communal rabbi of the old Litvish school of communal rabbis. He was the last one of those. A rabbi in the, first he was in London, Besden, before he moved to Israel, and he was later a rav in the Grashul in, in Bayit Vigan. So, um, so I remember Rabbi Folshem Levitz. One of my rabbis at the Mir Yeshiva, he told me that I asked him if after Shanghai, officially his father removed himself from communal affairs. His father, Chaim Shmulevitz, had enough of communal affairs after his uh, China experience during the war. And he wanted to just lead his yeshiva and give shiurans. I asked him, was he able to maintain that? He said he officially held a position on the Vadha Yeshivas and he officially held a position within the Agudas Yisrael, but he didn't get actively involved. He said if he would, if Reb Chatzkel Abramsky would sign on something, then he would sign on it all. Then Reb Chaim would sign it all. So he, he followed Reb Chatzkel Abramsky. He would look on it. He said sometimes he saw his father, he wouldn't even read the proclamation, the Kol Kairi. He would just look at the bottom and see if Reb Chatzkel Abramsky signed, then he would sign. He wouldn't even know what it was about. I don't know, maybe that's an exaggeration, but that's what he told me. In any event, so... There's this, again, like I said, on one hand, an ambivalence. On one hand, the practical considerations of day-to-day life, the benefits that can be had from participating in the political process. And, and, uh, and that's definitely a position that's exemplified by the Ger Rebbe. You know, he, he supports the Poyale Agudis Yisrael, who are a bit more Zionistically inclined than the mainstream Agudis Yisrael. Eventually they collapsed, uh, not 
you know, he never withdrew his support, as did even more moderate elements within the Agudis Yisrael at the time, like the Sadiger Rebbe, who was living in Tel Aviv, who, um, who died in the 1960s, if I'm not mistaken, um, and he, following the Rizian tradition, definitely didn't have any great opposition to uh, the Zionism or the State of Israel, also a supporter of the Poyle Agudis Yisrael. But again, uh, he's in the Aguda. The Aguda took a certain way. He he even expressed it to some of his Hasidim. He said he chose not to remain, not to be vocal, to not to not create a feeling of dissent of dissent. Excuse me, within the Agudas Yisrael, within the Mayetzes Gedeli Hatayra, that things should flow. We need to build. There was a big, you know, destruction in the war, and now we have a. Now we have, we're living in the state of Israel with all its challenges and its advantages. Let's try just to maintain our Jewish life. And that becomes really the main um, dominant um, uh, position of, I would say, even most uh, rabbis in, in, the, in, the central, in the central stream. And I, again, I think it's exemplified by the Ger Rabbah. And here we move on to someone who's in that stream, but a bit more of an extreme position, um, Rav Shach. If we think about of the last half a century in the post-war, especially the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, the 25 to 30 years of the epitome of his leadership, um, one of the people who stand out as a leader is Rav Shach, Rabbi Lazar Menachem Shach, um, for his leadership skills, and even the people who um, were his detractors, people who disagreed with him, no one could deny the fact that he possessed unique leadership capabilities, even if they might have disagreed with his uh, approach or his ideas. And Rav Shach's position uh, was much more hands-on um, than almost any other rabbi of his time. He was actively involved in every political decision. He was actively involved, again, he even founded a political party. He broke off from the Agudis Yisrael. There's uh, big disputes with the Ger Rebbe, among others. And he spent many, many years um, having disputes, ideological uh, disputes uh, with many others. Like I said, the big one was with the Ger Rebbe, the Leif Simcha, the younger brother of the Beis Yisrael, but with many, many others also. It's a long list of the people that Rav Shach had issues with, and he spoke his mind. He was very vehement in his opposition of whatever he felt needed to be opposed. And he, uh, in fact, I just heard recently from a grandson of Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, um, that uh, that um, that uh, he he said that uh, in Europe before before World War One, the time of Rabbi Zikolchon, in the end of the nineteenth century, Yaakov Lifshitz, the famous secretary of uh, Rabbi Zikolchon Inspector, he was someone who spoke out. He was a big uh, outspoken person, and he was very extreme. He was a fighter uh, in his ways. He spoke against everything. He was anti everything, basically. So he told, Rav Shach said, every generation needs one person like Yaakov Lifshitz, and I took it upon myself to be the one who speaks out against everything that I feel that needs to be spoken about. And he took it on as, uh, as his... So he, he um, takes this, first of all, it's active leadership. There's definitely no, uh, nothing hidden in his... He never hid his opinions. He also took a very conservative position on many, many issues. And there was a very conservative form of leadership, meaning the more things that we can, can keep and, uh, and conserve without changing from the previous generations, in his view, what the previous generations were, obviously, 
um, that's that's the way that we're going to try to maintain it, even though he breaks off from the Agudas Yisrael, which is definitely a radical position. Um, but he felt that that was necessary. So he founds his own newspaper, he founds his own Bezdin, he makes the break between the Agudas Yisrael. He oversees the forming of what's today known as the Yeshiva world. And it's a Yeshiva community, whether they learn in the Kail, which many of them did, or whether or not, but he sees it as a distinct identity that does not see its identity formed with the Agudas Yisrael anymore. They're a distinct community, and they're different than the Hasidic community, they're different than the mainstream Agudas Yisrael community, they're their own yeshiva community, and that identity is something that's very, very dominant today in the, 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 in the Israeli world, in the Israeli Haredi world especially, and that is formed principally by the personality and the leadership of Rav Shach. And his position, as far as Zionism is concerned, is, is, um, is again, an active um, participation in the political process as far as it's relevant to what he sees as the issues facing the religious world, especially the yeshiva world, budgets, things like that. But then he even took positions on larger aspects of Israeli society, he, he he took positions in the right-left divide in Israeli society, leaning towards the left. He happened to have been anti-settlements. And, but he was one of the only great rabbis of his time who took outspoken positions on those things, meaning he felt that that was within his realm and that that's what should be spoken about. So here you had a very, very powerful and dynamic leader who's forming an identity, not just like I mentioned with the Ger Rebbe, of a more passive going along with the flow, which Rav Shach had an aspect of that also, but he had a very um, vocal position on many, many matters, both within the Torah world and as far as Zionism and the government and politics was concerned, and he took a very, very active role. And, And if we would summarize his position, it's first and primarily activism, and the idea that that uh, you know, voting is such a crucial feature of religious life, was really promoted by him. And that's the future of religious identity in Israel. The idea um, of, 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 of being very opposed to Zionism, but still working within the system, meaning the non-recognition of it, but we have to work within it because we need we need to, you know, you know, be here for our rights and our budgets and anything else that we need to be concerned for with the overall Jewish identity of the state of Israel and for the future of the religious community within it. So he's balancing a very interesting position by being in opposition, vocal opposition at times, but still working within the system. Not only working within the system, but he felt that it was a big mitzvah to work in the, within the system. So Rav Shach and his leadership definitely played a major role, and uh, and his influence is also uh, felt so much till today. I would even add how much it's felt till today that the barometer within many segments of religious society, both in the religious media, Haredi media, and in political statements by the representatives in the Knesset or in different, uh, different cities, city councils, or even by rabbis and rabbinical leadership today, the barometer of a position is what would Rav Shach have said on this position, and how different are we going to allow ourselves to go different than Rav Shach? Meaning that he becomes the 
the measuring stick of what's considered legitimacy within that segment of society. Uh, another position that, that I would like to focus on for the remainder of our talk here is probably the most famous position and the most extreme position, that of the Satmarov. And he's the only one of the positions that we're summarizing here that didn't actually physically live in Israel, but his, but his relationship with Zionism, which I mentioned already in earlier episodes, is so important and so famous and so became a major feature of, uh, of, uh, of, of that, that it exists as a position. So it definitely plays a major role in, in, uh, in rabbinical uh, positions as far as Zionism is concerned. Might be even the most important, most, most famous uh, position. He, Satmarov believed with a very strong religious belief that there's nothing, absolutely nothing good in Zionism. It's pretty much the worst thing possible. And the, it's not just that it's secular, but the idea of a state before Mashiach comes is a violation of the Shalosh Fuiz, which I mentioned in an earlier episode of this series. And therefore, everything that follows with the founding of the state of Israel and on is absolutely 100% treif. And he lumped the Agudas Yisrael together with that in this treif because they participate in the in the voting process, they send representatives to the Knesset, and he had a lot of choice words to say about the Agudas' participation in, in, in the active life in the state. And his position simply was non-recognition in its most extreme sense. Um, as far as you don't take any money from them, don't recognize them, protest against anything that, they, that they're doing wrong, that you feel is wrong, don't be scared. And... Uh, and uh, there's absolutely no legitimacy to their position. There's, there were Satmar Hasidim who would be arrested by demonstrations who they would not even submit their name to the police when the, in the Russian compound because they said, we don't recognize the legitimacy of the, uh, of the state and therefore of the arrest as well. So his position was, uh, was a very extreme one, uh, total non-recognition. Now, he lived in America. He did visit Israel quite often and he helped out his followers here by sending them financial uh, support, which also continues to this day. Um, but um, in a practical way, it became a little bit difficult. And those who tried to follow his position, and there's different levels of those who tried to follow his position. There was the official position of the Badatz Eda Acharedis, which the Satmarov was nominally the Nasi, the president of. He was in charge officially of the Eda Acharedis. The Eda Acharedis is position after Reb Zelig Ruvain Bengis, who might have been the last moderate at that time to be in the Yedah Haredes, um, died. Leadership of the Yedah Haredes went to Reb Pinchas Epstein, who was one of the only leaders of the Yedah Haredes to actually have been a Litvak, like Reb Zelig Ruvain Bengis, who also lived in Valazhin. Most of the leaders of the Yedah Haredes were Hungarian, though, either Hungarian Hasidim, Moshe um, Ari Efrain, who was the only gaivet of the Yedah Haredes, was actually a a real uh, a bona fide uh, Satmar Chassid, but others were either Oberland, you know, uh, non, non-Hasidic Hungarians. Um, you had others, you had Yerushalmi's like Rabbi David Yungreis, um, and these great leaders of the Eidah Haredis who followed the extreme position of the Satmarov with varying levels, right? When the Minchas Yitzchak, Rabbi Yaakov Weiss, who was a Rav in Grosvardian before the war and a survivor of the Holocaust, he, he 
was a uh, he was in the Manchester Besdin, and the Satmarov arranged that he should move to Eretz Yisrael to become the Av Besdin of the Eidah Haredis. So they said he is not a Kanoi. He's not he's not as extreme as we would like him to be. So the Satmarov said. We'll make him into a kanoi. We need a Talmud Chacham. It takes years and years and years to make someone a Talmud Chacham, a Paisik, on the caliber of the Menchas Yitzchak, who is a world-class Paisik, and huge Talmud Chacham. That's, that we got in him. We need to make him a kanoi. We'll work on him a little bit. A kanoi you can make pretty quickly and easily. You don't need, you don't need to, uh, to, to work that hard. And he was successful in doing that as well. So the Satmar position is officially taken in the Yedah Haredes. The Satmar position, to a certain extent, is taken by the Naturi Karta, who had broken off of the Yedah Haredes, because they, didn't, they considered them, them more extreme, and in certain ways the Naturi Karta was even more extreme than the Satmarov himself was. Um, again, there's a lot of uh, nuances here, and I don't want to overgeneralize, I don't want to get yelled at, but um, these, these differences did exist. But overall, the symbol of the non-recognition, the non-voting, uh, the non-participation whatsoever in the state affairs, whether you live in Israel when it's really difficult to continue like that long term, or especially outside of Israel where it's much easier to not recognize them, that became the position of the Satmarov and his followers, his followers in Satmar, his followers in the Yedich Haredes, in the Torah Karta, and the, some other smaller Hungarian Hasidus is um, the new and emerging Munkach in the Toldus Aaron uh, Hasidus in Yerushalayim, Toldus Aaron Mitzchak Hasidus in Yerushalayim, and, uh, and others who, who followed in his, uh, in his way. So his, his, his position not only was directly influential in his followers, but it influenced even those who were not directly his followers, because it gave, again, like I said with Rav a certain barometer, a certain measuring stick. You know, we do we ideologically believe like the Satmarov, but we just practically work differently? And that's what people started to question themselves. Uh, or, or do we fundamentally disagree with the Satmarov? And, and what about after the Satmarov goes? What, what, is, is it, how, how practical is it to continue with that position? Um, so those are the questions that, that continue to exist you know, you know, uh, exists in, in the society because the Satmarov, being who he was, he was a very, very, again, charismatic personality, very strong personality, and anyone, even those who direct, didn't uh, directly follow his ways in all, all of its extremity, they took his position with a certain seriousness, and um, Rav Shach greatly respected him. It's a hesped that Rav Shach gave for him. And uh, there's even certain testimonies that Rushach, on a fundamental level, agreed with him, just in the practical application, felt that uh, certain uh, uh, practicalities were necessary for the daily life in, in Israel. So the Satmarov is, um, is, is the other extreme, and his position is strong, and it still exists today, um, both as a, a way to follow and as an ideological idea that people grapple with and deal with of the of the illegitimacy and the total opposition to the fact that there is a Zionist movement or a state before the time that Mashiach comes and everything else that went along with it. The idea of voting and every time there's uh, an elections in Israel, people are quoting the Satmarov about how it's forbidden to vote. And, um, and it, it's, always, it's always the position of the Satmarov is always uh, um, even either followed by those who follow or even if it's not followed by 
definitely considered and taken seriously. So, within, in summary, we summarize the different positions of different rabbis who shaped um, the positions uh, as far as Zionism is concerned, from a messianic vision of Ritzvi Yudha Kuk to the practical way of living of either the Ger Rebbe or of, uh, or of Shach, to the break between those two camps by the story of Rav Goren, Rav Yashiv, of the Langer children, and again to the extreme position of the Satmarav and his following. So that kind of brings up the idea of how it comes down till today from its earliest days of when the idea of nationalism um, was brought up, when it became popular. And nationalism is still an idea. And there's still the question of how does Judaism relate to nationalism? How practical is it? It does nationalism play a role in Yiddishkeit, in Jewish life, in Torah life? Is the identity only shaped by the Torah, or is there a legitimate form of nationalism included? And how do we carry out at a practical level? So I hope that uh, this series was informative, and I enjoyed it. And uh, we'll come up with new series of in the future. We'll keep it as a surprise for now, but we'll let you know soon. So this was Yehuda Geber with the grand finale of the rabbis and the Zionists. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com. Questions, comments, sources, and of course tours and trips to explore the past, to hear about these people all over Europe, places in Eretz Yisrael, where we can uh, confront our past, make sure to be in touch about that with any kind of group, your shul, your family, a yeshiva, or anything else, any other framework that we can arrange. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Don't miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites. And I hope you enjoyed.